0: From Rare Cancers Australia, you're listening to Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. Hello and thank you for joining us for another episode of Radio Rare. And for our final episode of our COVID Connect miniseries, we hear from Julie and Giovanna, Clinical Nurse Specialists at Cancer Council Victoria. Julie and Giovanna give us an insight into how the turbulence of the last 18 months has affected people living with cancer and what patients are most concerned about at the moment. They also share how they've been supporting people through the uncertainty of a pandemic on top of a cancer diagnosis. But before we begin, a reminder to all of you listening, we at Rare Cancers Australia have a vision that no Australian should have to go through their cancer experience alone. If you or your caregiver ever need to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you reach out on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au.
1: Well, today we have two cancer clinical nurse specialists on the line talking to us at Radio Rare. We have Julie McGurr and Giovanna Racco. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming on the on the show. We know that you are very busy at the moment and you're both in lockdown in Melbourne and um, it must be hard just adding another screen to your day, a screen appointment. So thank you for coming on the show today.
2: Welcome. Thank you, Emily. Thanks so much for having us. So we really want
1: to talk to you both a bit about how COVID and, and the whole pandemic in general has impacted people with cancer because they're already a really vulnerable group both physically um, and psychologically. So I'll get started with you Julie if you can just uh, talk to us about what you've observed observed has changed for people affected by cancer during COVID.
3: I suppose what we were talking about before is COVID. Cancer people experience uncertainty and their families a high level of uncertainty during their treatment. Um, whereas, uh, and the advent of um, COVID-19 and the pandemic has overlaid that and subsequently the distress levels of people experiencing cancer are incredibly high. Um, at a distressing time, they've had to take on board new behaviours, different lots of information, which has sometimes resulted in, I suppose, um, a cognitive overload um, that we as as health professionals have also had to take on. Because I think the one thing everybody can probably say about COVID-19 and the pandemic, it's a movable feast. You come to work, and information changes with so quickly. So I can't even begin to imagine the effect that that has on our cancer community and people experiencing cancer. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's, yeah, it defies belief sometimes what they've had to cope with and adapt with.
1: Because I can imagine, G. before I go to you, I can imagine um, that there are some parallels because, You know you're constantly waiting for test results and you're constantly waiting to hear what rules you need to follow when you're when you've got cancer and you're doing similar when you're in lockdown you're waiting daily for the daily case numbers and and the new instructions and the new lockdown rules or the easing of restrictions is that is that right G?
2: I think so um, Emily and I keep I keep getting back to the phrase that you know COVID-19 and the pandemic it's just added like an extra layer of complexity on top of an already kind of complex situation. Most people, when they get a diagnosis of cancer, um, you know, it's it's quite overwhelming. Um, it's quite isolating anyway, the experience, um, especially when they're sort of, um, you know, starting treatments um, that are gonna isolate them anyway. I'm, I'm thinking of like chemotherapy. So, you know, at a time where we're telling them to kind of um, make sure that they feel well supported in that experience, it was actually really difficult to do because on top of that, we've got COVID-19, um, you know, we're already telling people to be careful, um, you know, make sure they're doing good hand washing, wearing their mask, avoiding people with infections. Um, and I think it really just, I, I think, like Julie said, heightened that sense of isolation even more. And mm. then fear of actually getting unwell and getting COVID-19, the fear of actually catching the virus and what does that mean for my cancer diagnosis? Um, yeah, I think not only just, you know, not only people with cancer, but also carers as well. There was a lot of um, anxiety.
3: Mm. And I think that anxiety, you know, people sort of working, like living within a family and a partner may have to go to work. And remember last year, we didn't have vaccines. Like, mm. we didn't even know that we were going to have vaccines. So, you know, the moral conundrum that, that families had to face, I need to go to work. I could be an essential worker. What risk does that pose to my loved one? That um, these are things that perhaps, gee, you know, people have not had to experience or question before.
2: Mm, absolutely. I mean, I remember talking to, you know, callers that um, were worried because family members had to go out to work. And then there was talk of like, well, when they come home, what do we do? How do we kind of isolate almost within the home as well? You know, um, yeah, which is really kind of sad. And it's sort of now that we've Mm. got the vaccines, it's bringing up another
3: cohort of, I suppose, moral conundrums that I spoke with a caller last week um, who said, I'm just finishing my chemotherapy. I really, they hadn't lost their hair. I wanna go and get my hair done, but mm. I'm too nervous to ask the hairdresser, have they been vaccinated? What What's? What do you do? And there's no correct or right answer about that. Um, and another caller today is in the middle of their treatment. And yes, Melbourne, there is that buzz about freedom and opening up, mm. but for our cancer community and their families and carers, it's it's
2: anxious times. There's still mm. hesitancy, isn't there? Like, it's exciting thinking that we're we're actually getting out of isolation, but at the same time, um, it's created, like, another sort of level of hesitancy. Yeah, mm. transition
3: into, because there is a high level of viral burden, you know, cases mm. um, out there, that, that what do you do? Yeah, and because people have been isolated, they've missed their families, G. as you said, mm. you know, grandparents mm. unable to see their grandchildren, um, vice versa um, and particularly for elderly people perhaps who don't have a partner um, I know when I work clinically there are some people that that come who are older people I love coming to have my treatment because you are the only people that we see and that highlights the only people that we see where well, we're all in
2: PPE. <laughs> yeah and the no physical contact you know, that distancing, that one, po- that is really quite foreign, I think, for nurses, that yep. 1.5 <laughs> sort of, you know, meter physical distancing, because we're so used to, um, you know, welcoming patients and and being able to have that contact, not just with our facial expressions, but also that physical contact as well. Mm. Yeah. Definitely, G, mm. definitely.
1: Can I just um, go back to what you were saying, Julie, about your caller this morning who was asking about how to ask the hairdresser about vaccination? What did you tell her? I said,
3: at the end of the day, there's no right or wrong, really. It's about how safe that you feel. What do you need to do to feel safe? And this person had the relationship with the hairdresser to probably be able to ask that. And I know for myself, getting my hair done, I've actually asked that question because mm. I feel I have a responsibility to, because I'm I'm working here on 131120, but I also work clinically in a day oncology unit, albeit part time. I need to keep that community safe as mm. well as my own family. So, um, but at the end of the day, in advising, you know, people who call here and patients you care for, there is no correct or right answer. I suppose it's about what you how you feel safe, you need to feel safe and that it's okay to ask those questions. I think giving people permission, that's okay Um, and how to do that.
1: Well let's just segue for for just briefly into these vaccines. We know, don't we, that these vaccines are safe for people who are on chemotherapy or post-chemotherapy.
2: Yeah we do, we do. Um, A lot of people are concerned that you know the the vaccines have probably been quite fast-tracked but my understanding is that you know, there's been a lot of work going on between a lot of organisations to get these vaccines to where we are now. So, no steps in the actual um, development of the the vaccines has been missed. Um, You know, as far as we know, they are safe vaccines. Um, And, you know, there's talk now of, um, you know, people getting a third vaccine, people that are immunocompromised, um, that have been treated with the Uh, first and second dose of the vaccine, that they can now actually access um, a third dose of the vaccine. Mm. Um, Yeah, to kind of keep the the sort of levels up um, so that they're able, yeah, able to fight, you know, the virus as such.
1: Yeah, look, I just I just looked up that ATAGI gui- guidance this morning. It's come out and it's recommending that people who are immunocompromised can go to their GPs and they can get a third dose. Now, this is not called a booster. It's called a third dose, part of the primary course, kind of on top of the two doses that everyone else gets. And you need to get it. And it's preferable that it's a Pfizer or Moderna, even if you had AstraZeneca to begin with. And it needs to be two to six months yeah. after your, your second yeah. dose.
2: That's right.
1: This is what oncologists are telling people, isn't it, with pe- people mm. with cancer?
2: Yep, absolutely.
1: Mm. Keep, to keep them safe. So I'm, I'm glad we talked about that. So going back, we're backtracking a little bit more again. Gee, you said it's been really hard to talk about, I mean, you, you used to talk to people about bringing their support networks closer when they had a di- diagnosis. Mm. What have you been telling people over the last 18 months when they can't bring them physically closer? What have you both been telling them?
2: Yeah, we've been encouraging um, people to still be involved as much as they kind of can within the person's, you know, as much as they're able to, uh, within, um, you know, getting that information, trying to um, attend appointments with them. Um, We've been... um, Telehealth has come in, so I suppose that's been one avenue that they've been able to be involved with their, their carers, been able to be involved in conversations, like really important conversations that are happening around diagnosis and treatment. So telehealth's kind of come in. Um, I think the use of technology as well, like actually um, if carers can't physically be with, you know, their loved one in an appointment that as long as they've got permission for the doctor, they're able to call them and put the phone, the mobile phone on the speaker so that they can, to some degree, be involved with the conversation. It's required, I think, a lot of patience on everyone's behalf. And I think it's about just, you know, the underlying message is that it's about keeping everybody safe. So I think carers understand that. But at the same time, you know, in their own way, they're kind of living that experience. And I feel, I think they've missed out a bit too, because, you know, a lot of the support we provide is not just to the patient, but also, you know, the carer as well. Mm -hmm. That some of their networks, I think, you know, I think it's important for them to be looking after themselves as well amidst all of this. Mm. Definitely, G.
3: And I think we were able to Cancer Council Victoria and earlier on, I Mm. know we did a lot of coaching with people with cancer and also the carers about how to use a telehealth appointment, Mm. because that's critical, getting used to that different way of um, meeting the healthcare system in a way that wasn't quite envisaged as quickly um, as what, You know, people had to sort of adapt. So, and giving people um, coaching regarding that. So there's some good information on Cancer Council Victoria's website that they developed about how to get the most out of your telehealth appointment, whether you're a cancer patient or Mm. a carer. Um, It's been very difficult for people who are in hospital Mm. because of the visitors restrictions. And that's, I think that's been incredibly problematic for a lot of carers because they haven't been able to have that access. And with the restrictions in Melbourne, no visitors. Are allowed. Oh, that's mm. awful, mm. awful. And that was difficult, um, I think, for people um, in palliative care. And I know Cancer Council mm. Victoria yeah. did a lot of um, advocacy allowing people perhaps who were dying in hospital to have a loved one there. Yep. You know, the changes in the Department of Health and Human Services, their COVID guidelines, they advocated to get some of those restrictions mm. adapted for the needs of people who may be dying and in palliative care. Yeah, absolutely.
1: An awful situation. Mm. So how have you guys as Cancer Council, uh, as Cancer Council clin- clinical nurse specialists, how have you been able to, I suppose, walk beside mm. these people during a time of such physical distancing?
2: That's a really good question because um, I think we've been living it as well. So like Julie was saying before, we've had to keep up with a lot of information and we're living through that experience with them as well. But I think, yeah, we've been able to, I'm thinking with 131120, our information and support service, we've certainly been able to provide um, information. Um, We've probably done a lot more of what we call follow-up calls. So people that contact the service, um, you know, if we sense a really high level of distress, we'll offer a call back, in about, let's say, you know, a few days or a week, depending on the level of distress. So I think our, you know, our callbacks um, have definitely increased. I think the length of time, of calls has increased as well. There's probably been a lot more time spent on the phone um, supporting people. And I think too, we've adapted um, a lot of the services that we provide at Cancer Council to try and accommodate for that, not being able to physically be there with people. So, You know, we have, um, through Cancer Council, an online community. Um, So encouraging people to, you know, connect in with others via the online community. We have a great peer support program called Cancer Connect. So, and these are volunteers that have been through the experience, Emily, of cancer. They're a couple of years down the track doing well and they offer support on the phone. So we were certainly able to link in callers and carers and family members into our peer support programs you know, our wig service, conscious we couldn't run it face to face and people couldn't come in physically and try on a wig, but, you know, the decision was made to continue that via um, a postal service. So, you know, we could send out an application form, encourage the person to connect a couple of photos to it, send it back. Um, You know, our colleague that runs the wig library was able to have a look and see, you know, what's the best kind of fit we've got, then send that out to the person. So, I think we kind of tried as much as we could to really adapt to the situation. Um, I know we um, expanded our financial counselling service. A lot of people during this time, especially with all of the lockdowns, um, not being mm-hmm. able to work during the course of their treatment, not just the person with cancer, but also family members, a lot of distress around financial issues and concerns. Um, so we certainly expanded that service and we do offer some um. You know, if people would like, we can link them in with a financial counsellor through our organisation as well. So I think we really tried as much as we could to look at what we offer, we offered Mm. and, and tailor that to suit, you know, the situation as such.
3: I was just going to say too that our wig service was the only wig service that was operating during all the lockdown which is the only wig service so women and wigs are expensive there were no other Mm. retail shops open Mm. no other service so they did a phenomenal job and I think financial counselling we had just a financial counsellor had started because in the past that's what we felt that that would most benefit people affected by cancer. Mm. And that sort of, you know, fitted in just perfectly.
1: Perfectly. Um,
3: initially, why the government last year was providing JobKeeper, um, mm. it was reasonably not quiet, um, but as that's been rolled back, financial distress is mm. actually taking mm. a huge um, impact. As all the um, government pensions have been wound back um, to help people, because
1: mm. it's probably not just the people that can't work because cafe or is out of business or whatever. It's people who yep. are choosing not to work because their health is in jeopardy. Is mm-hmm. that right?
3: Exactly. Yep. Exactly.
1: So are they supported by, have they been supported by the government financially as well? The people who've chosen not to work for their own health because they're immunosuppressed?
3: I think I spoke with the caller last week who's on JobKeeper. They can't work because of immunosuppression. Mm. And we're lucky with our financial counsellors because they know they have that information. They know how to navigate that sort of um, very vexing um, time in people's lives when things are not clear cut and you'll need incredible information, not only about your disease and COVID vaccines, but about the financial landscape, because decisions that you make can have huge consequences in terms of accessing superannuation, that can affect a pension. It's a really complex um, field, really. And I suppose what terms of advocacy, just looking at the themes that we've had during COVID, I suppose when it first commenced March, May last year, Cancer people and their families had difficulties accessing um, essential items and medications. Yes. We all remember the yes. toilet paper. Um, but we had a caller who was having chemotherapy and had diarrhoea. Like that was an expected side effect. They couldn't get toilet paper. Oh. Um, so Cancer Council with advocacy with, you know, the supermarket chains, could you please? Um, you know, have some priority access for people affected by cancer. So they're not there with the general sort of, you know, community. Um, Hand sanitizer, which mm. is critical. There was a shortage of that. Um, um, Yeah. So, and access, I think, during that early stage, I know, and gee, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but breast screen actually closed. Yeah, I remember
2: reading that. They did for a period of time, Mm. yeah. And the flow
3: on for that for other things like a call i had this morning had a suspicious lump march last year was too frightened to go of because of covid mm. and now they have advanced disease
0: coming up after the break Julie and Giovanna reveal how they have coped with caring for others as well as themselves and the most common issues they've had to navigate with patients. But first, a message from our specialist cancer navigators.
4: Hi, my name is Beth and I'm a specialist cancer navigator with the patient support team at Rare Cancers Australia. Our team understand that everyone's journey is different, so we are here to support those affected by a rare or less common cancer diagnosis by navigating you through some of the hurdles you may be faced with. For example, we can link you in with peer support, which is linking you with other cancer patients who are going through a similar journey to yourself. We can also link you in with support groups that we have run for patients or carers. We also have the ability to link you in with clinical trials for your specific cancer type. We can link you in with specialist clinicians for your cancer type as well. So if you'd like, feel free, give us a call on 1-800-257-600 or email us on support at rarecancers.org.au.
1: Yeah, they're horrific knock-on effects, aren't they? Because, you know, a cancer undiagnosed doesn't mean a cancer does not exist, does it? It's just going to be diagnosed later. Mm. It's not Mm. going to go away. Mm. And that's, you know, that's the key message a lot of us, a lot of the organisations, the cancer organisations have been really trying to highlight is that if you're concerned, please just go to your healthcare provider and and get checked. Because even though screening Mm. seems to have paused, the cancers aren't.
2: And that was a really strong message Mm. as well from Cancer Australia during that time that, you know, the message was that if you have any symptoms, Mm. don't leave it, go and see your doctor, get these things checked out. Um, I mean, we just heard the other day that data from, you know, the Victorian Cancer Registry estimates that approximately two and a half thousand cancers may have gone undiagnosed in Victoria over just six months
3: And that was last year, not factoring in this year as well. And it's sort of educating people that cancer's not a choice. It's not an elective. It's actually a category one. Mm -hmm. And the expectation is that treatment for cancer, which is category one, will go on as, you know, as can be. Um, It will adapt within the the framework of COVID. Um, But it's to be treated, definitely. Um, So really,
2: I think kind of, Almost allowing people permission that it's okay to go to the doctor to get yep. this breast lump yep. checked out or whatever the symptom may be during a pandemic. Yeah, it was it was almost like, you know, really kind of encouraging people to do that. But the fear was so great.
1: So we have a few things that have been contributing, no doubt, to people people's anxiety and concerns about their cancers. so we've got you know that they're more isolated that they're having to be at home probably more cocooned because of that threat of the virus and also enduring long inpatient stays without any visitors and without any charities other organisations or volunteers coming in to visit and bring them you know bring them things to entertain them with the normal things that we have when we're inpatients in Australia. Then we have the threat of potential shortages of medications yep. mm-hmm. as we had last year and then the, the concern about procedures being delayed, um, planned admissions being delayed, usual reviews, maybe the oncologists are not getting back to people as much as quickly as they'd like. Mm. Um, and then there's, of course, the threat of the virus. So all of these are on top of the fact that these people are living with a life-threatening illness. That is, that is just mm. probably debilitating for some. So how do you guys walk with and talk people through the heightened anxiety and the uncertainty over the phone? How do you do that?
3: I suppose that we've been able to adapt and provide some psychological counselling through Cancer Council Queensland. We, at the beginning when the pandemic first started and we saw these Understandable distress levels going even higher. We were able to get more appointments with cancer-specific psychologists. As Giovanna's um alluded to, um, a lot of cancer support pivoted. I yeah, didn't know whether to <laughs> use that word yeah. pivoted, but adapted, adapted to having online communities um, that that people could join. Plus, also, I think. Gee, you've talked about it. We've done more follow-up calls. In sort of being that coach for people, like um, there was one caller that comes to mind who had a rare cancer, was doing really well for their treatment. But what had happened with the pandemic is their support network, their crew couldn't have contact with them at all and was becoming increasingly depressed, isolated, lonely because their partner was out all day and this person had been working, you know, albeit in a part-time capacity, had to give up work because of the you know, the threat of COVID. So we essentially, we were able to organise some cancer counselling with the psychologist, but we became the coach because Mm. this person wanted to stop treatment and go back to the country where their family was because they were so lonely. So it was just because you tell people all the support strategies, you know, go and have coffee with someone, albeit safe within, you know, the bounds of safe chemotherapy, immunosuppressive um, therapy. They couldn't do that have a massage, you can't do that. So it was just finding different ways of filling incredible holes. So mm. I remember this person vividly, just as a follow-up, just getting, getting them through, um, mm. being that contact yeah. point, ensuring credible information. I don't know, G, I'm sure you've got many
2: examples as well. I mean, we know with um, a cancer diagnosis that there's heightened levels of anxiety and depression anyway. Um, I think the rates are quite high, 30 or 40%, I think. Um, mm. But this extra complexity with, with COVID that, you know, that was added to that, um, you know, I spoke to someone um, yesterday that, um, you know, when we check in with every caller that calls us, yeah. we check in yeah. with level of distress. So we just use a really simple um, distress tool, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, if zero was no distress and 10 was extreme, where do you think you might sit on that scale? So it's kind of allowed us an opportunity to really check in and see kind of where they're sitting on that scale. Um, you know, and I, I can honestly say a lot of people were up and above that, you know, sort of that 6, 7, sometimes 8, 9, 10, you know, highly distressed. Um, and I think as a result of all of this, it's really brought, um, you know, mental health to the fore. It's actually okay now. Um, to ask about level of distress and mental health, as well as physical health, um, and it's actually okay to ask that. It's okay to talk about it, and then let's have a look and see what um, you know supports we can put in place. Um, you know, how can we best try and support you at this time? And like Julie said, you know, Cancer Council offered a few more counselling services and, and sessions, but that in itself was quite stretched as well. Really, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of people trying to access counselling now that, you know, there's waiting times, there's waiting lists.
1: Yeah, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a thing across Australia I've heard that, you know, psych- psychologists are in high demand. It's almost impossible to get someone.
3: Queensland were fantastic. Cancer Council Queensland were great in supporting us that they had a turnaround of between two weeks. I think that's pushed out now because the, you know, they've got their own demands and needs as well. But it is difficult, mm. incredibly mm. difficult. Um, and we've all undertaken extra training and how to support people. And I think it's reflected in that when you look at Cancer Council information and support lines throughout the country, Victoria, we've had the most calls the last 12 Mm, months Um, and I think that's you know due to um COVID um, and Mm, um
1: yeah well you've definitely done the hard yards haven't you in Victoria but we've been
3: able to sort of adapt and really try and fulfill and create Mm. that important um fill the gap you know, we're more yeah. than than just gap fillers. We're just, um, and we have a new project now where, where we've got nurses now who are in the regional part of Victoria um, to try and, and reach out into the regional areas. And I think it also highlights, um, Giovanna, Emily, that, the border closures with with people, yes. oh, yep. that was just, um, you know, I struggle Very even difficult. now to understand the impact of border closures and for people that live in Victoria that might be accessing Albury-Wodonga or South Australia. It that, has yes. been really, that's just been, you know, a nightmare.
1: I don't think we could have ever foreseen this before the pandemic, could we? No.
2: No. no.
1: So tell me, this must regardless of all the training you've had this must have a huge impact on you both as you know professional clinical nurse specialist in this role looking after people who are very distressed but also being in Victoria yourselves and trying to constantly empathise with people on the phone how are you both coping and how do you help yourselves?
3: I suppose that Just alluding that it's been a comfort, I think, to people who call in, like someone today who I spoke with, oh, you're in um, Sydney. I said, no, I'm in Melbourne, Victoria, and already you could hear their voice go, you know what it's like. And I think in terms of um, we've walked very much beside people. Um, I mentioned cognitive Mm. overload. We've been like that, (laughs) like trying to keep on board of all the information. It feels overwhelming. But I think it's sort of grounding yourself and being very mindful of physical activity limiting news Mm. I've told people people with cancer and carers don't watch the news I give you permission to not watch the news (laughs) I think people (laughs) need permission sometimes to sort of step back from all of that Um, you know I've been fortunate I've got a partner but they're working from home and just contact with you know wider family and friends, but the issue now is when the restrictions were lifted, I didn't feel the excitement that around my neighbourhood was because in Melbourne case numbers are still high. I think mm. out of respect mm-hmm. and responsibility, I'm I'm actually sort of quite going to stick within, be very mindful and consider about mm. what we do. Mm. I mean,
1: it's it's. Dif- yep. It's so different to last year, though, isn't it? Because you were gradually having this optimism build as you yes. saw the case numbers drop. This year, it's not the same. It's not at all. the same.
2: It is very, very different. different. Yeah. That's yeah. Similarly to Julie, um, I felt really quite connected to all kind of health professionals. You know, like yeah. working. I still work one day clinically um, in a public hospital, and yeah, just just that common kind of connection and that common bond between nurses. And I think, too, just being able to step away at times and, you know, you need that break. Um, like Julie said, you know, physical um, exercise becomes so much more important and knowing that we could get out, you know, for two hours a day or whatever for some exercise has been fantastic, you know. I, I think just keeping that up has really, really helped. And they're probably the things that have really... And I think, too, the team, that we, we work with a very supportive, very like-minded team. Um, and we have the opportunity within our team, you know, to debrief if there's been any challenging calls or calls where you may have been distressed and you just need to talk to someone about it. We're totally confidential. So whatever comes into 13-11-20 stays within 13-11-20, but great to have that opportunity to debrief with other team members. And I suppose to even time out if that was required, yeah. you know.
3: Do you know, G? I just want to add that, you know, compared to some of my other colleagues in other areas of the health system, we've been really fortunate that we've had clinical supervision. We've had the opportunities, you know, to, to debrief. Um, so just following on from what you said, G, where that hasn't been available to um, a lot of colleagues. Um, one colleague, you know, who wouldn't mind me saying this, has actually resigned from a role that was incredibly demanding because there wasn't that support there. So, um, yep. yeah, Cancer Council Victoria has been exceptional, mm. I think. And at 13, 11, mm. 20, mm. you're right, Jean. Absolutely. Jade. Yep.
1: It just, it's just been horrific, isn't it? I mean, there is end in yep. sight for the majority of the population, but these measures do not end yep. for yep. people because, as we were talking before, uh, you can have the third dose of the vaccine um, if you're immunosuppressed, but you're still supposed to use precautionary measures, aren't you?
3: and I think that with the normal population they forget that yeah yeah and it's sort of like I'm out walking and I see neighborhoods and they're you know friends in the neighbors there oh yeah it's finished I said no you've still gotta you know so um someone said oh Julie you're a bit of a killjoy I said (laughs) no I'm just being real. I'm realistic I'm totally realistic
1: Mm. pandemic doesn't just end does it no 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 No. Mm. no So if there are people listening today who are really feeling very isolated, I mean, you know, in, in, in some senses, you and Victoria are further ahead than other states because you have had wide community transmission and your high vaccine rates. Uh, so other states are likely to follow behind to a certain extent. I realise they won't go through the depths that you have been through. But for those people out there who are going to be isolated still for a fair while, and they're dealing with their own cancer and they're really struggling what would your main message be to them today
2: honestly i think pick up the phone and call us on 13 11 20 we've kind of um we've sort of been through it and we can certainly um you know have a talk to you and um provide you with some you know strategies to help you manage it sort of going forward Absolutely. And
1: can I just um, can I just jump in and ask? Do you you help with strategies, but you also help people to navigate the healthcare system? Is that right?
2: That's yep. right. Most definitely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah. For a lot of there are so
1: many hoops to jump through and oh, things like that. Absolutely.
2: There? There's so much to um to kind of learn. You know, with a cancer diagnosis, it's a whole new world. So, absolutely, yeah. And throwing. COVID Mm. on top of it, it's a new navigation system.
3: Um, And as G said, helps just 13, 11, 20 away that you might be feeling isolated, you might be feeling lonely, but just pick up Mm. the phone, um, cancer information, we can connect Mm. you and try and make it a little less isolating.
1: And Julie, can you just wind back a little bit on that note? What what have been the biggest um, issues that you guys have had to help people navigate in this different healthcare system now I suppose this healthcare system impacted by COVID what has changed for people with cancer for the most part other than the precautions and and the the hand sanitizer and the COVID testing I think
3: for instance like getting a wig like we can Mm. start you know that's been incredibly difficult for people well what do I do and most people before the pandemic we had when we still have a lovely wig library, so face-to-face, being able to have that contact and, and um, on a face-to-face, it was a wonderful connection because it was, you know, enabled us to see what other supports we could, could give. I think it's helping people navigate perhaps appointments mm. and the health mm. system um, to make it clear and understandable and then informing people of their, their health rights, I think, um, and educating them, I think, also that if you've got concerns about cancer, a lump, whatever, you can still you can still have access to healthcare, and it should be the same as you know pre-COVID mm. um, the level of care. Um, and I think the other thing is helping people. You know, it is difficult to access psychological mm. support, and we know that as G has said high levels of distress, anxiety, depression are expected and it's being able to help people mm. na- navigate that system.
1: Can I ask, have, have either of you had many patients who have not had their medication or treatment as timely as it would have been ideal for their cancer because of COVID? Does that make sense? Has, have, have either of you had, had clients that their treatments have been delayed out of the optimal time frame and changed because of COVID impacts?
2: I have spoken to um, a few callers that have been in that situation um, for whatever reason, and certainly that creates, you know, a lot of worry um, for them. But I think mm. the barriers with the hospitals, like I think people have found it really
3: difficult that with processes that happen in the public and, you know, the private sector that, yes, you've got this cancer diagnosis, um, you need surgery, but we'll, we'll ring you yes. when we've got a date yep. without giving people a time frame. I've had a few callers that have experienced that. And you can imagine I've got a cancer diagnosis, but I don't know. They'll ring me. I don't ring them. Um, and it's sort of, you know, that, that existed sometimes pre-COVID, that a better way of saying, you know, a suggestion um, and who am I is that, yes, you've got this cancer diagnosis, you will have surgery and this amount of time is mm, safe. Yes. you know, It's safe um, because the natural thing you can imagine yourself um, is this going to impact, yeah. you've got cancer, yeah. you want it out tomorrow. Um, 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 but people sort of communicating that it is safe to take this amount of time, whatever that time is, because there's a variation between, you know, obviously all different cancer types.
2: Yeah, um, you're right, Julie. And I suppose part of the work Cancer Council has done is with the Optimal Care Guidelines, and we have been referring to those quite a lot. An Um, awful lot. Yeah, so they're actually on the Mm -hmm. website, um, and they provide a bit of a guide as to, like, what the optimal timeframes are for actually treatment. So once a diagnosis is made, you know, when you can sort of, like, expect the different sort of treatments to happen. Yeah, so have certainly been referring to those quite a lot.
1: Oh, that's so handy. And I have 2G because mm. yeah, it's,
2: it is.
3: people need yep. to know that. And it's a critical tool that we do use. Yeah, I do 2G because I think it's um what to expect. Because um, you
1: don't realise, do you? You don't, I mean, I'm a doctor myself and, and telling someone, oh, I'll let you know your result in 48 hours when it comes back. You, and I've been at the receiving end as well. And that 48 hours yep. can seem like two years yes. when you're waiting for yep. a result yep. when it's got yep. to do with cancer.
2: Yeah. And that's something I've been hearing a little bit about, you know, and I think encouraging patients to be their best advocate, you know, in, in a way yeah. they have to kind of follow that up, you know. Um, well, the doctor said I'd get my results, like you say, in two days, but haven't heard anything as yet, you know. So just encouraging them, look, you know, it's actually okay, you know, give them a call. Let's see, yeah, whether the results are through. or working more with their, their local GP as well um, as another sort of um, entry point as well, yeah. But you're right, Mm. that seems like an eternity when you've got to wait for test
1: results. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Yeah, waiting for daily case numbers is one thing, but waiting for test results when it's cancer is quite another, isn't it?
3: And then I think it's having the impact of media too that's you know like um, there's been things Mm. in the media only recently about you know um, elective surgeries all that sort of feeds into that anxiety I've got cancer and I won't be operated on because of what's happening Mm. with the pandemic and we've had you know numerous calls over Mm. the last couple of weeks about that and say no no that will be definitely going ahead.
1: Well thank you so much to you both for joining me today it's been really enlightening for me and I'm sure our listeners and it's just it's nice to hear people talk about things that um I suppose it gives empathy doesn't it when you listen to people who who get what's going on who already can articulate and acknowledge the problems that are out there and that it is not you're not in it on your own are you
2: no no No. That,
1: you're, that you're hearing these similar problems from a lot of people in the cancer community. So that's really reassuring, I think, for those with cancer. And um, and it's just been really, really helpful for us to have you both um, talk to us today. So thank you so much to you, Julie McGurr, and to you, Giovanna Racco, for coming from the Cancer Council to talk to us today. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much, Emily. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Emily. Much appreciated.
0: Thank you for joining us for our last COVID Connect episode here on Radio Rare. COVID 19 has added an extra layer of complexity to an already complex situation for cancer patients. We hope this episode has provided reassurance that there are many, many people out there feeling the same anxiety uncertainty and trepidation about living through a pandemic with a cancer diagnosis. There is support out there, and you are not alone. Just as everyone's cancer journey is unique, so is each individual's experience of the pandemic. We hope that by listening to this podcast mini-series, that these views and insights will help you feel more connected with others who are also navigating the uncertainty of living with COVID-19 and that you can take away practical advice and ideas for your own cancer journey. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr. Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Mixing of today's show by Alexander Smith, reporting by Dr. Emily Isham, we are edited by Casey Virgin and myself, and our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website, and you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Simply search Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers, and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening, and we wish everyone a happy and safe holiday season. We'll see you in the new year with more shows here on Radio Rare. Bye for now.